Okay, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy 5 this morning. 1 Timothy 5, continuing this week in verses 19 through 22. Last time we were together in 1 Timothy, we considered the scriptural teaching in regard to the church's response and care for those who are considered elders in the church, the elders that rule well, and specifically the elders that rule well who are those that have dedicated themselves, or especially those who labor in word and in doctrine. And the Bible tells us, uh, Paul told Timothy here, that those elders who rule well, especially those who labor in word and doctrine are worthy of a double honor. And we spoke of what this means. We recognize that the church carries a definitive responsibility, responsibility, a definitive obligation to care for its ministers materially, but that this somewhat unspecific idea that Paul gives here of a double honor likely has far more to do with a measure of, of respect or a measure of um, recognition than it does necessarily material remuneration. And we trace that through the reality of the fact that we're to be content with the simplicity and particularly the man of God is to flee uh, those things that would relate to the heavy buildup of material wealth. Well, this week we continue along this theme of elders, and indeed not just this week, but next week as well, we're going to be continuing through this theme of elders, their position in the church, and how God's people are to respond to them, how elders are um, uh, to, to respond back. And then as we look at these interactions one with another, we are going to be also regarding, again, the necessity of being very careful when it comes to choosing elders, ordaining elders. The church is intended by God's people to be orderly. It's intended to be organized. It's not intended to be a group of people that are uh, led by their whims or by their desires or, or by, by politics or by gossip or by any of these things. It is intended to be led by the Lord, not, not ulterior motives or misplaced priorities. The church is important, important enough that we would lay aside our pride and our selfishness, our petty grievances, even our not-so-petty grievances, in order to further the ministry. And of course, at the, the head of this is the church deciding on their elders. And as we've considered in any number of instances, we recognize the church's authority and the church's accountability that comes with that authority. And all of these things are going to come to play today as we look here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, continuing on this topic of elders, beginning in verse 19. You're there. The Bible says this in verse 19. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. So within the context of giving the elders that rule well double honor, and especially those who labor, the Bible says in word and doctrine, we find this exhortation that the church would not receive would not accept, not admit to their consideration an accusation against an elder of the church, except that accusation uh, be substantiated by two or three witnesses. And notice that word witnesses there. This is not, or two, not two or three people who heard from a friend of a friend of a friend, but this is two or three people who can personally vouch for the reality of this Problem. Now, there are several things to consider in regard to this call. First, we recognize that this is not the first time that we've seen this standard of two or three witnesses. In fact, this is, if I may call it this, the standard level of proof that we find within the whole of the scriptures as it relates to this concept of witnesses. So we read in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. Now this standard, the standard that we just read here is applied both in uh, Numbers chapter 35 verse 30 and in Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 6 specifically to those within Israel who are charged with murder. And yet we find here a much broader application in Deuteronomy 19.15, the same concept brought in to apply to all of those who are charged with any iniquity or for any sin. And it was this specific passage that we would believe Jesus to be quoting in Matthew 18 when he speaks of the nature of church discipline. So in Matthew 18, verses 15 and 16, Jesus says this, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. 
If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in, every, that, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. To this end, we find Jesus carry over this standard of proof, this standard by which one would receive an accusation from the Old Testament, from Old Testament law, into New Testament ecclesiastical precedent or ecclesiastical authority, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Now we know from Jeremiah 17.9, we've spoken about it any number of times recently, particularly as it relates to Jeremiah, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah asks, who can know it? There are any number of reasons why a person might falsely accuse another. Indeed, in society today, in politics, we're seeing many of these uh, debates around accusations and, and, and false accusations coming up. There's this uh, movement within the, the Me Too sphere called Believe All Women. The idea that women would never have any ulterior motive in, falsely, in, in accusing a man. Therefore, every accusation must be true. And we must believe it as true regardless of any substantiation of facts simply because of the accusation. But there are any number of reasons why a person might falsely accuse someone, aren't there? Maybe it's because they want revenge for some perceived wrong. Maybe it's an end justifies the mean, accusing them and, and causing them to have a, 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 stopping their plans or causing them to fall is more important than my honesty or my integrity. Maybe it's because they feel shame over their actions and so they want to shift the blame from their actions to someone else by blaming someone else or, or by accusing someone else of a fault where there was no fault there to begin with. Maybe because they don't want someone else to be ashamed of them. Maybe it's because mom and dad found out about something and they don't want mom and dad to think that they actually did what they did. So they falsely accuse someone of something in order so that mom and dad don't think they did what they did. Maybe because they're jealous of a person and that person's position, their accomplishments or their fame. So they want to bring that person down a peg or two, level the playing field by levying false accusations against them in order to lift themselves up. Maybe it's because they want to blackmail someone and they found someone who's wealthy or they found someone who has power. They have someone who finds connections. And so they find this person and they say, I'm going to blackmail you through false accusations unless you give me what I want. You might say, well, pastor, sure, out in the world, out in politics and whatnot. Uh, of course, that's happening. That's happening all the time. But we're Christians in the church. Right? We're in the church here. Let's be realistic as it relates to the church. Certainly, I would never do that, Pastor. And to that, I only reply 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Many of you know full well what your own heart is capable of. Some of you perhaps have never really seen the fullest manifestation of your own sinful heart. But when backed up to a wall, when it seems there is no way, people who would otherwise never contemplate certain actions will find themselves contemplating them. And so we put into place protections, each of us in our lives, in order to guard ourselves against our own worst impulses or even to guard ourselves against other people's worst impulses. I will never be alone with a woman in a closed door session or anything of the sort. Not because I don't trust women, but because you never know. And if I'm never alone with a woman, then there will never, ever, ever be a chance that I can be falsely accused. And there will also never be a chance that my worst impulses or her worst impulses could get the better of us. And so you simply don't go there, right? We put up protections in our lives in order to protect ourselves and others from each other's worst impulses or even from the testimony uh, issues that might come from such a circumstance. And one of the protections Jesus established in the church was this protection of numbers. That no accusation should be regarded where there are not two or three witnesses to back up that claim. Well, pastor, does this mean that if a person is alone, that he can get away with things? How is it fair that a person who's alone with someone else can feel free to, to take advantage of that situation because there's no one else around. Well, is, is that what you're saying, Pastor? Well, well, in a manner of speaking, yes. In our society, of course, there are certain other elements of evidence and such that can, that can be brought to bear to prove when one person makes an accusation. But here's the thing. 
Thank God his standard for us is not fair. His standard is just, right? God's standard is not fair. It's just. We want things to be fair. And fair is a great thing. I hope, I hope we all want things to be fair. But being fair is nowhere near as important as being just. Thank God God did not deal with me in a manner that was fair. Because if God was going to deal with me fairly, I would be unequivocally headed to a sinner's hell. What happened to Jesus on my behalf was certainly not fair. But what happened to Jesus on my behalf was just, wasn't it? Jesus paid my debt. God laid Christ's sin, uh, my sin on Christ, and I am thus released. I am forgiven. 100% that justice, the wrath of God for my sin was satisfied. Justice was satisfied. That God may be both just and the justifier of them that believe, right? So it was not fair what Jesus had to do for me. It was not fair that Jesus had to suffer and die, but it was just that he judicially paid for my sin debt. Pastor, but isn't it unjust if a person gets away with doing wrong simply because there's no one there to witness it? That a person recognizes that no one's around so he steals something? And then when someone comes up later and says, well, I don't know who did it, but this person probably did it. It seems most likely that they did it. Or even, they even told me that they were going to do it. And yet there's no proof. There's no witness. There's no, there, there's no way to actually pin them to the crime. Well, that's, that, that justice has not been served. Well, two things. First, yes, in those cases it is morally unjust. But it's not legally unjust, is it? Because legal justice demands proof. Legal justice demands innocence until proven guilty. Far better that a guilty man get away with something than an innocent man get accused and punished for a crime he did not do. And that is one of the burdens of human justice, that it's flawed. So is it morally unjust for a person to do something wrong and get away with it? Well, certainly it's still morally unjust. But legally, judicially, it's not unjust. Because there's no just way to mete out consequences if you cannot prove that there was an offense. And second, and this is the more important part of this. So the premise here is, Pastor, are you telling me that if, a, if an elder has been accused but there's only one person who saw the elder do that thing, then the church should not even regard that accusation, that they should not accept that accusation so that that elder might be getting away with something? How is that just? Well, first off, it's morally unjust, but it's just in the sense of legally. But second, remember this, and this is important, no one gets away with anything. Nobody gets away with anything. If I, as a pastor, am, am, am sinning, am doing some wrong against someone or against this church or even just against myself, and there's no way for the church to be able to substantially prove it in a manner that could cause a rebuke to fall upon me, what the people that may suspect or, or that, that single accuser who knows what they saw can believe with all of their heart is that I will still one day stand before the King of Kings. Right? I will still one day stand before the throne of justice. And on that day, there will be no question. There will be no false accusations. There will be no lack of evidence because the God who knows all and who sees all will be the judge. Right? So if there is no witness to attest that this person can be brought before the church, well then leave that person to God. Don't allow it to eat you up on the inside. Leave that person to God. God will take care of that justice.
So back into our context here in verse 19. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. If there is a problem with an elder in the church, especially if there's harm being done that could spread to others or deep wrong in the church, well, these things need to be mentioned. And the exhortation is not intended to allow, this exhortation that, that you would not receive an, ex, uh, an accusation, this is not intended to allow evil to exist unopposed in the church. This is not intended to allow pastors to have the leeway to do wrong in the church and to not get, uh, not, not get rebuked for it, but rather to exhort the church to favor humility and unity in this regard and to favor what we would call justice. As it relates to 1 Timothy chapter 5.19, it's also a protection, is it not? A protection for the elders in the church against accusations that would be unfounded. So the first thing that we understand is that this principle of two or three witnesses is firmly rooted in the biblical principle that we see all the way back to Deuteronomy, Numbers, uh, in regard to the law of God. And then as I just mentioned, one of the primary reasons we might understand for such a principle as it relates to elders is perhaps because people in position of moral leadership are people who are uniquely vulnerable to being targeted for attack, aren't they? It's one thing when you're in a position of, of uh, political leadership or if you're in a position uh, of academic leadership or whatever the case may be. Uh, we've even seen a great deal specifically in the last couple of decades uh, about people wondering whether or not moral leadership is even important as it relates to political leaders, right? And yet for a pastor, a great deal reflecting what we know from 1 Timothy 3 and the, and the qualifications of pastors and deacons, a great deal of a pastor's authority is bound up in his moral authority. People, however, love to see moral authorities fall. They love to see moral authorities fall because it gives them a measure of justification for their own moral failings. People love to see those in moral authority attacked. Now, I'm not saying you all, right? I'm not saying we, but people generally. People love to see those in moral authority discredited. And pastors in particular are men in moral authority who have a good likelihood throughout the course of their careers of offending at least somebody. And if moral or ethical discrediting of a pastor in the eyes of his church or in the eyes of society was as easy as simply a single accusation, well, then pastors would be in quite a bit of trouble. To this end, it is practically important that the standard be applied very specifically to those in positions of moral authority within the body. So the elder is, in a manner of speaking, intended to be afforded, if we can call it this, the benefit of the doubt as it relates to accusations. And as we considered last week, where we read about the elders who rule, and especially those who labor in the word and in doctrine, being worthy of double honor, the elder is, as it were, enti as it were entitled to a level of respect whereby the church does not regard an accusation against him unless there's clear and compelling evidence as the reasonable standard. And if an elder has not earned enough of your respect to afford him that courtesy of justice as it relates to accusations, if your pastor has not earned the level of respect so that you would, you would demand at least two, if not three witnesses to some accusation before believing it, well, then he has no business being your pastor. Either he needs to go or you need to go because anything else is a recipe for harm and sorrow, and frustration, and disunity, and anger, and all of those things. Because when a pastor is subjected to accusations without this right, without this leeway, without this opportunity, not just to defend himself, but the opportunity to, to uh, not have that accusation received unless there is multiple witnesses unto it, well then, really, he's being set up for a fall. The church is setting him up for a fall. And when we talk about that, do recall, it's perhaps not well understood among, uh, among those in church just how much pastors invest their hearts into their people and into the work of the ministry. And when a pastor is accused, 
and he is set at naught, when he is put out of the ministry or when he's removed from a church setting or even when he has to go through the process of trying to debunk a false accusation, it comes at a tremendous cost to himself, to his family, to his testimony, and it may very well be irrecoverable. To that end, these protections are put in place, and that's why it's so important to regard them. This is another reason, as I mentioned again, why the qualifications of a minister as we see them in chapter 3 are so important. If you are called to give this man, this elder, the benefit of the doubt, if you're called to give him double honor, if you're called to respect this man, then you'd better make sure he's the kind of man who's worthy of that. And if you find somebody who you can run down that list in 1 Timothy and say, yep, yeah, that's, that's the kind of man I'm under, then you have found someone that's entitled to that. So don't take those qualifications lightly. Don't just hand over ordinations and authority in the church indiscriminately. The pastorate is a big deal. It's very important. Don't flippantly ordain. I, I, know, I, I know you can get an ordination online. You can be ordained into the Church of the Spaghetti Monster online for 20 bucks. I know that. But don't flippantly, let, let us not flippantly ordain men. Don't casually hire pastors. Look for the marks of God's call upon their lives. Examine them carefully and prayerfully and humbly. Seek unto men who are those ensamples to the flock, as 1 Peter calls, because the pastorate is far too important for anything less. To this end, we find this call in verse 19, that the church would not receive an accusation against an elder unless established in accordance with God's generalized definition of justice. And when such an accusation does exist, when there are two or three witnesses that can substantiate first-hand knowledge, not friend of a friend told me, not I heard from this person, not these things, but when there are two or three actual witnesses and there's first-hand knowledge and this accusation is credible, that's when we get to verse 20. He says, Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. Now, within our context, there's no doubt that Paul is still directly on the topic of elders here, that upon a valid accusation of an elder, valid accusation, two or three witnesses substantiating this, one that is in sin should be rebuked before all, publicly and before the assembly, and that for this reason that others may fear. And this is important to establish. Because we do not find in this context that the method of rebuke is necessarily one that is to be followed with relation to everyone in the church body, only specifically here as it relates to the sin of elders. And I'll explain what I mean by that as we continue within our message. It, this is not to say that sin in the body should not be dealt with. Indeed, it should. When there's sin in the camp, when a member of the body is walking contrary to sound doctrine, there is a call that they would be admonished and that they would be reproved. In fact, we just saw a few minutes earlier in Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus was speaking about offenses between brethren, uh, this sort of an idea play out. Jesus speaks uh, uh, in regard specifically to offenses against brethren. And the call was that a brother would go individually to the brother who has offended and that he would confront him about this offense. And if he would not listen, then he would bring one or two other people so that in the mouths of two or three witnesses, everything could be established. And if he would not hear them, Jesus then says this, picking up in Matthew 18, verse 17. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. So the final step in this process of confronting an offense if the offending party has rejected private reconciliation and has rejected reconciliation before witnesses who have substantiated the claim of, of this wrongdoing, the final step would be to bring this matter before the entire assembly, to bring it before the assembly, to let the assembly know what happened, and then the assembly, if the assembly agrees that the offense is valid, that then they would call this man unto an understanding of his offense. And if he refuses to hear that, if he does not repent at that point, then he would be removed from spiritual fellowship. And take note here, and we'll see this as we get into 2 Thessalonians and uh, into Galatians, that this doesn't necessarily mean removing him from physical fellowship. 
In other words, the idea is not here that because you're removing him from fellowship that now he's become public enemy number one in the church. And if you see him at Walmart, you're not allowed to talk with him and you have to give him an ugly look and uh, you know, spit in his general direction. We're not talking about that, right? We're not talking about being unkind to him because he's doing something wrong. Nobody treats a publican or a heathen that way in the church, do you? I mean, your neighbors, they're playing his rock music and, 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 and out, out there being loud and swearing and whatnot and you... You uh, uh, then invite him over for a meal or, or you refuse to ever invite him over for a meal or you refuse to ever interact with him or, or ever talk with him or anything simply because he's a heathen doing heathen things? Well, no. You don't act, you don't treat sinners, unbelievers this way. You treat them with love and with the courtesy, but you don't invite them into your spiritual fellowship because they have no place there, right? You're not going to uh, bring them into your house and, and uh, you might do an evangelistic Bible study, but you're certainly not going to do an in-depth believer's Bible study with someone who has no bearings by which to understand spiritual things. And so this is the idea here of treating one as a heathen man and a publican removing him from that normal spiritual fellowship, removing him from communion, because that's, a, that's an element of spiritual fellowship, removing him uh, probably from membership, if, if we have a membership idea, because there's a spiritual fellowship and communion idea within membership. The, the ideas of, of praying together, the ideas of doing those believers' Bible studies together, those would be things that would be outside the scope of interaction with him until such time as he repents because you're going to treat him as a heathen and a publican. Now, we saw a few weeks back a very similar exhortation. I mentioned Thessalonians already. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we were talking about busybodies in the church, right? And the idea in, of intruding into other people's matters. And Paul said this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Notice again the call, that if a man is confronted and he's walking disorderly in the body, that that man is to be identified and exhorted. And if he does not obey that exhortation, he is, you're to have no company with him, no fellowship with him, right? But this is not a casting out. Don't count that man as an enemy. You're admonishing him as a brother. That's what you're doing here. And this comes down to intent. This comes down to the object. Just like with uh, discipline or, or with any of those elements in life, uh, different people can have different objects for what they do, right? The same action can have different objects. And the object unto which you are att uh, seeking to attain will change the manner in which your action plays out. So if we are seeking to cast someone out of the church for their sin, then we are thinking of them as an enemy, right? We are, we are at that point uh, working up in our hearts a measure of anger or resentment or hatred or disfavor or whatever it might be so that we are seeing him now as an outcast. This is very different from removing one from our fellowship as a wayward brother, one who we love and one who we desire to be reconciled with, but who we can't be until he is right until he gets himself right. Because there can't be fellowship, spiritual communion between me and him as long as there's an offense between us. And of course, this calls us to humility, does it not? Because I need to make sure if we're going to do this thing that on my end, there is no offense. That on my end, there has been forgiveness. That on my end, there has been a full willingness unto reconciliation. So that if and when that brother does repent, I am here with open arms ready to receive. And if I'm not there, then I need to go back to the drawing board of my own heart. And I need to get things right in me. And so we see this exhortation a call to bring a man into a solemn realization of his error within, with the intent of restoration. We also saw this in Matthew 18. 
that removal of fellowship, of spiritual fellowship, treating him as a heathen and a publican. One more passage that I want to show you in this regard, and that's Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. When a man is overtaken, the goal of the church is restoration. It has to be restoration. Now, a man can't know he needs to be, a man cannot be restored if he doesn't acknowledge a failing, right? If a man is sinning, he can't have restoration until there's first repentance. He can't be picked back up if he doesn't know he, he's on the ground. We often say in regards to evangelism, a man isn't going to grab a life preserver if he doesn't know he's drowning, right? You have to get a person lost before you can get them saved because you have to make a person aware of the reality of their sinfulness before they can flee to the solution to their sin problem. It's the same with a brother in the church. If a man is sinning, he has to be brought to an awareness of his sin, and then he has to be brought to an awareness of the separation that that sin has caused before he would be willing to seek reconciliation. If I make him aware of his sin, and he refuses to do anything about that sin, but I do not then withhold from him, I do not levy a measure of spiritual consequence, I do not withhold fellowship, then he's going to say, well, apparently I can live in sin without any consequences. And not only that, of course, but it's going to hurt the church because the church will now be, there's sin in the camp, right? There's sin in the camp. And then, so I levy that consequence of removing spiritual fellowship, not counting him as an enemy, but admonishing him as a brother with the intent that he would be ashamed, that he would recognize his error, that he would long for that spiritual fellowship, that he would see that he's on the outside looking in of that which he appreciated and loved, and that would bring him to a place of repentance. And then finally, that's where we come to Galatians 6.1, that when a man acknowledges his fault, he is to be promptly and joyfully restored in a spirit of meekness. Meekness is not weakness, right? Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is when I take all of my strength or my authority and I direct it toward some intended end. So meekness in this sense would be to take all of my passion and love for the Lord, all of the elements of, of spiritual fellowship and all of the church's authority that, that God has granted to the church and direct it toward building this man back up in the Lord rather than directing it toward any sort of censure or anger or whatever the case may be. Now, an elder is also a member of the church, right? And so to go through this process with an elder is certainly not outside uh, the bounds of interpretive safety. And to that extent, we might even be able to say, well, pastor, can't we then extend 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, the idea of, of a man being, being in sin and rebuking him before all? Couldn't we extend that to the body? Well, we could. And I... I think that there would be a measure of interpretive validity to that, but I'm hesitant to do so. I think Paul is giving a much stronger call to Timothy in relation to elders and sin here. We know that that's the direct context, right? There's no question that elders is the direct concept, context of this open rebuke. And everywhere else where we see the idea of church discipline, uh, there is an idea of making a person aware, even publicly aware of his sin, after going through the process of individual reconciliation, right? But that being said, nowhere does the Bible speak of rebuke as it relates to those other elements of the church. Only here in 1 Timothy. And so I'm much more willing to apply it directly to elders and then to back off perhaps on the rest of the church than to say that anybody who's in sin, we need to make a public spectacle of them. So Paul gives this strong standard to Timothy in relation to elders to rebuke them openly before the whole church. And this, of course, for any number of reasons, because the elder is the public face of the church or the, uh, the, the head of the church as it relates to the earth. He has a, a, a greater level of responsibility. He has the responsibility of charting the course for the church. He is an example to the flock. And so just as I ought to be an example to the flock in my meekness and my obedience and my love, if I'm in sin, 
why should I not become an example to the church in, in rebuke? Why should I not be an, become an example to the church of what can happen or what ought to happen or what may happen if I persist in my sin? And so we, they are to rebuke before all that others may fear. And this takes boldness for our church. Especially if the church has turned a blind eye to a pastor's sin for a period of time. A pastor's been angry and the church has not done anything about it. And now he's entrenched. The pastor has been um, uh, covetous. He's been taking money off the top or he's been demanding much or wanting much or manipulating or whatever it might be. And he's become entrenched in his position. He's been allowed to do it for a time. And, he's been, and, and then he becomes proud and he becomes entitled. And he begins to think that the church is his church rather than Christ's church. And many of us have perhaps seen this before where someone has the boldness to stand up uh, and to say that some pastor or pastors have done wrong and the rest of the people of the church know it and they agree with it but they don't want to cause trouble and they don't want to rock the boat and they don't want there to be issues and they just want things to be like they normally are and they, they just want it all to go away and so they just want to bury their head in the sand and pretend like it's not there. And the pastor, if he's proud and if he's entrenched and if, he's, and, and if he sees this, he'll play off of this. And then he might throw that touch not the Lord's anointed idea out there. And he'll invoke that example in First and Second Samuel where David refused to, to harm Saul because Saul was the Lord's anointed. And so David was even smitten in his conscience when he, when he but cut a, a bit of the garment off of Saul to show Saul that he could have killed him if he wanted to. And he repents of that. And he says that it was wrong for him to do that. And his, his uh, men come up to him and say, we have a chance to kill Saul. Let's kill Saul. And David says, no, I refuse to touch the Lord's anointed because, so, because David knew that the anointing of the Lord, that, the, that, that he was God's chosen man by the prophet of God, Samuel. And that if God put him into that office, then it was God's right and God's right alone to take him out of that office. And this was even after David was anointed, right? David had been, had been anointed as well and Saul was trying to kill him. Hey, he's trying to kill the Lord's anointed also. Yes, but Saul was the Lord's anointed. David says, don't touch him. Well, let me give you a little bit of inside information here. I am not the Lord's anointed. I'm not the Lord's anointed. There is no prophet that came and anointed me. There is no, my, my name is in the Bible, but it's not me, right? It's, it's, he's, he's the second son of Simeon. That's, that's not my dad's name. It's not me in there, right? I'm not, I'm not the Lord's anointed. And to say that I am the Lord's anointed is to do a tremendous injustice to the text. I may be a man who is called Depending on one's perspective and background, you may say that you can recognize upon me an anointing. I've had people say, I can see the Lord's anointing on you. Basically what they mean is that they can see God's call. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm fine with that. I do have a call. No question. But there's not one biblical reason for me to consider myself divinely protected from criticism, divinely protected from rebuke, because I'm, I'm an ordained minister. God did not put me in this pulpit. Now, in the broadest scheme of things, he did. But you know who put me here? God's people. That's what ordination is about, right? God has established a method by which the church ordains men. You see my call. You recognize that the Lord has a call on me, and then you call me to be a part of this church. And now I'm under your authority in that sense. You're under my authorities. It relates to elders and, and such. You have, you have called me to be your authority, but you also have, are, are the body that has ordained me to this ministry. And that gives you a responsibility over that ordination. There's not one biblical reason. There's certainly not a biblical reason for me to be immune from consequences of my own sin because I'm an ordained minister. And we don't have to go any farther than this particular passage to recognize that the church has a responsibility to rebuke sin among elders. So for a man to get up into the church and say, you can't touch me, touch not the Lord's anointed, it's bad interpretation, it's bad preaching, and it's, it's just plain wrong. Much to the contrary, I'm held to a higher standard. 
Isn't that what 1 Timothy 3 is all about? Remember when I told you that 1 Timothy 3 is not, it, it doesn't, other than the, the particular nature of being apt to teach, right? The idea of a man that has a capability to express himself in a way that people can understand and to express the word of God in a way that people can understand. Other than that characteristic, every other characteristic effectively within the qualifications of the pastors and deacons is something that you're supposed to be too, right? It's just that the pastor is one who has shown himself faithful to those things to the extent that God's people are willing to make him one who is their example and their leader. Follow me as I follow Christ. Well, what that means is that I have a higher standard, not a lower one. That I have a higher accountability, not a lower one. It does, when, when, when I, 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 didn't, I didn't get tenure when I came into the pulpit, right? It's not as if now I'm untouchable. My job is secure because I got ordained and now I am the Lord's anointed. Can't touch me now. If God wants me out, he can remove me. However, that's not it. It doesn't work that way. Yes, I'm to be given a double honor if I do a good job. But if sin is established, then I am to be rebuked before all that others also may fear. So then when an elder sins, the church is called to rebuke him publicly and such a rebuke will have a very strong effect. The very strong effect of being a public warning to others in the body about the shame and the sorrow that accompanies sin. And this forms the framework of accountability within the body that we all ought to have. Now, an open rebuke of an elder is not by any means an ideal way to deal, to, to maintain purity in the body. But when it is necessary, it must be done for the good of the body, not just of the elder. But let it also be remembered that this is a major issue. And one of the big problems that is related to whether it be elders rebuking others or others rebuking elders, anytime these things come up in the church, one of the biggest problems is church politics, right? Favoritism, pride, selfishness. And if these things are anywhere near a part of the process, then it's not going to work God's work of reconciliation. It's going to work alienation, anger, frustration, carnality. This is what we see warned about in 1 Timothy 5, 21. I charge thee before God, verse 21, and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one another, one before another, excuse me, doing nothing with partiality. Paul speaks in very serious language here, charging the church before God the Father, before Jesus Christ, before the elect angels, those being the angels that chose to follow God at the time of the fall. So, uh, and I had some, I've had someone ask before, well, pastor, isn't the word angels for me messengers? So couldn't this be earthly messengers, uh, pastors, the elect? But you'll never, I, I, don't, I don't know of an instance, New Testament or old, where that word messenger would relate to a man, but be combined with the word elect. And so this idea, it, it, it very, very likely means angelic beings, and particularly those angelic beings that did not follow Satan in his fall, but rather followed God and remained faithful to him. And in doing this, by invoking this standard, Paul is calling to witness effectively every righteous spiritual being showing just how important this is, and not just how important this is, but he's showing here that there are direct spiritual consequences, that there are consequences in the heavenlies for the manner in which we perform church discipline, for the manner in which we deal with elders in the church, whether that be ordination or rebuke. This is a really important matter. Paul is making that abundantly clear. So Paul charges Timothy before the Father, the Son, and the elect angels in heaven that these things, well, what things? Any rebuke, any accusations against elders, that these things be observed in the body objectively and carefully, that there be no partiality, that there be no church politics involved, that there's no buddy system, no favoritism, no pride. Perhaps you've seen it before where a pastor spends several years just getting a bunch of yes men on the deacon board, and then when it's time for him to get in trouble, no one's ready to... To, to call him out because all of his deacons are his guys, right? None of that in the church, Paul says. When, when that's there, there's carnality. Where there's carnality, this process will only alienate. 
Such things immediately introduce carnality into the proceedings and thus will confuse and harm. They will not help. To this end, you say, well, pastor, I'm only human. Yes, you're only human. But you do happen to have the Spirit of God indwelling you. You're only human. But can we not walk in the Spirit? Can we not operate in the Spirit? And effectively, the standard is this. If the church cannot do this thing in the Spirit, if the church is not right with God, if there is carnality in the ranks, then the church needs to stop what they're doing. They need to stop any thought of rebuke, any thought of discipline until the church is right, until they are able to be spiritual. If an individual in the church is not able to enter into this thing without carnality, without some measure of favoritism or some measure of partiality, then perhaps they need to step out of the proceeding. Maybe a pastor needs to recuse himself from being a part of church discipline if his son is the one that's, a, that, that, that's being disciplined. Maybe the pastor's family needs to recuse themselves if, if it's their dad or their husband that's the one being rebuked because there's too, po- there's too much possibility for the entrance of partiality or carnality into the mix when that is the scenario. Maybe it is that a church would recognize a measure of carnality in the whole process. We're, we're stuck in, uh, we, you know, we're, we're, we want to do this church discipline thing, but we're stuck into factions. We've all factionalized into who thinks who is right and wrong and what people hurt. Well, then maybe the church needs to stop and they need to spend a month in prayer and fasting. And they need to get down on their knees and they need to confess their faults to the Lord and they need to confess their faults one to another and they need reconciliation and they need clarity and then we can come together and deal with this issue. Or in the family or in, as individuals. Maybe an individual needs a month of prayer and fasting or a weekend of prayer and fasting to get their heart right before they can enter into this process spiritually. Let's do that because Paul is showing here, I charge that he says before God and the Lord Jesus and the elect angels that there are spiritual ramifications for this thing. Therefore, we should treat this process very carefully. Now, there will always be those who are not happy with church proceedings when it comes to rebuke or discipline. Always. In any context of church discipline, be it elder or layman, no matter how properly done, there will be people who don't like it. There will be carnal people who say it's unfair or wrong or whatever the case may be. The world around us will always look at the church this way. An unbeliever will always look at the church this way because they're unbelievers. But this is not the case with church discipline. It's a right thing. It's a needful thing. It's an important thing. But it does need to be done right so that at the end of that proceeding the church can look at what happened and in right conscience before the Lord say, that was done properly. That was done biblically. That was done spiritually. That was done impartially. That was done with love. That was done unto reconciliation. That was done to restore. That was done to the best of our ability, aligned with God's word. And that brings us to a summary verse, really, in our final verse for this evening, verse 22. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. We see here this idea of laying hands suddenly on no man. This concept of laying on of hands is found only in a few contexts in the scriptures. We find several instances all in the Gospels and in the book of Acts where the laying on of hands speaks of arresting someone. Then we see a number of contexts again, or a number of times again in the in the Gospels and in the, in the book of Acts only, when the concept speaks toward physical or miraculous healing. We see a few times only in the book of Acts, two times to be specific, where the laying on of hands brought about the Holy Spirit upon someone. A very unique time in history. We're not going to talk through that today, but something that we would recognize to be unique to the early church. And then as we get to the epistles, we see that this concept of laying on the hands every time it's used and then also twice in the book of Acts, speaks toward an idea of ordination. So that in the book of Acts, we Acts chapter 6, verse 6, um, the men laid their hands on the deacons, and the deacons were then ushered into their responsibilities in the church. 
And then we see in Acts chapter 13, verse 3, the church of Antioch uh, called out Paul and Barnabas, laid their hands on them, and commissioned them to go as ministers to, uh, on their missionary journeys. But the most important of all of these instances of this idea of laying hands on someone is in 1 Timothy 4, 14. We also see it in 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. And these are the closest to our passage. 1 Timothy 4, 14, in fact, was just the last chapter of Scripture. And so we would typically seek to these examples to help us understand fully what laying on of hands might mean. And in both of these two passages, 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 2 Timothy 1, 6, Paul definitively and clearly references the laying on of hands as that point, that moment when Timothy was ordained to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the ways that we interpret Scripture with safety is that we start with what is clear to interpret what is unclear, right? We start with the known to interpret what is unknown. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, we don't exactly know what the laying on of hands is. Lay hands suddenly on no man. Does that mean arrest people? Uh, don't arrest people suddenly? Uh, does that mean don't heal people suddenly? Does that mean don't confer the Holy Spirit on people suddenly? Or does that mean don't ordain people suddenly? But if we keep this in context, well, then here's the thing. Paul in 1 Timothy 4 said, was speaking of laying on of hands unto ordination. And he never redefined the, the term. So we would understand, without really any controversy, that when Paul says lay hands suddenly on no man, the fact that he has not reinterpreted his context means that what we're talking about here is ordination. Don't ordain men quickly or suddenly. Don't be hasty to ordain men. That's the idea here. And then he says, neither be partaker of other men's sins. And this drives directly to what we considered in verses 17 through 19, that if an elder is worthy of double honor, and if an accusation against an elder should not be regarded unless carefully proven, then the church needs to not lay hands suddenly on anyone. Be careful, be slow, be deliberate in the process of ordination, because if you aren't careful and you aren't slow and you aren't deliberate, and a man gets into that, that position that should not be in that position, the church is going to go through some rough times. They're going to have to call out sin, or they're not going to call out the sin. And if they do have to call out the sin, of course, that's going to be grieving. And if they don't call out the sin, that could be even worse, right? Because now there's sin, and that sin is from the top down, and it's going to spread, and it's going to get worse, and then eventually the church is going to crumble. And so the church should not confer this responsibility lightly. And Paul says that when we do confer upon a man this ordination. The church must keep herself pure, not be partaker in the sins of an elder, not to be partakers in the sins of others in the body. If we overlook sin, if we condone sin, if we allow sin to continue where it otherwise should not, then we find ourselves being partaker of that sin by omission. Now take note, this is an extension not simply of my knowledge of someone sinning, but of a measure of authority that I have over them. I am not a partaker in the sins of my neighbor because I know they're sinning and don't rebuke them, because I have no authority over my neighbor. I have no authority over them, so to rebuke them for sin would be out of line for me. But within the context of the church, there is an authority structure, is there not? That when you join yourself to a church, you're joining yourself to a community, to a body. Your actions and sins cannot help but affect the lives of those around you. And more than that, by connecting yourself to a church body, you're connecting yourself to accountability in that body. In other words, the body has the authority and the responsibility by the fact that you're connecting yourself to them unto this rebuke. And thus, if the, if the body fails to rebuke one who's in sin, if you fail to rebuke an elder when he's in sin, you are partaking in his sin by omission because you have a responsibility. Just like I as a parent am partaking in the sin of my children or my wife if I refuse to rebuke their sin. If I refuse to deal with their sin, I am a partaker because I am their spiritual authority. So if the church neglects this responsibility that it has to deal with sin, as the Bible prescribes, then it is, by virtue of, of its failed authority, a partaker in that sin. And we don't want to do that. We are called, rather, 
to keep ourselves pure. And, and this becomes our application this morning. Three points of application, and it just basically mirrors this final verse. First, lay hands suddenly on no man. Second, neither be partakers of men's sin. Third, keep thyself pure. For any number of reasons, the church needs to be careful who it ordains. And you need to be careful under whom you submit. First, because you are submitting yourself, right? We consider this in 1 Timothy 3. We consider it in 1 Peter. That, God, that God's ministers are to lead by example. As, not as lords over God's heritage, but as examples to the flock. I am not your spiritual dictator. I don't have the right to tell you what to do in your life, spiritual or physical, but I am your approved elder. And you see fit to place yourself under my authority. And if you have done so, then I'm worthy of that honor. Second, be careful with ordinations because naturally elders lead the body, right? And if my eyes are blinded in the darkness of sin, then I'm not going to be able to see clearly where we should go. We need men to lead who are men of spiritual maturity and spirituality if the church is going to get where it needs to go. Third, as we saw this morning, because that if a man is found in sin, he must be rebuked openly. So if the church doesn't want to have to go through that very painful process of rebuking someone openly, then why don't you start by being careful who you choose to begin with, right? And as we said before, not all of this deals directly with age and experience as it relates to a minister. Paul told Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. You don't have to be an old man to be a man who reflects the kind of character necessary to be an approved minister of God. But we are also warned here, as well as in James 3, brethren, be not many masters, be not many teachers, knowing they shall receive the greater condemnation. And there are those who simply do not have the characteristics necessary, the stability, the maturity, and spirit necessary to be ministers. And that's okay. Far, be it, far better that the church hurt a man's feelings by telling him, I'm sorry, you are not approved to be a minister of God. There's many other areas where you can serve the Lord, but not as an elder or a deacon in the church. Far better to do that than to usher in the potential problems that come with a man who is not affirmed, not approved, not right, being a minister, an elder in the church. And that leads us to that second point, neither be partakers in men's sin. Church authority, church discipline, church purity, these are not matters to be taken lightly. When we think of authority, we often think of the exercise of that authority. That because the husband and the father is the authority in the home, that means he's in charge. One of my daughters likes to say, I can't wait until I'm a mom and I get to be in charge. I get to tell you other people what to do, right? That's the idea that, we, that, that especially children think of when they think of authority. They think of you get to be in charge. People will do what you say. But here's the thing. Remember that with authority, whether that be parental authority, whether that be government authority, whether that be pastoral authority, with that authority comes responsibility. Eh. Luke chapter 12, verse 48, second half. Unto whomsoever much is given, much of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more. Again, in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And most applicably, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, as it relates to elders, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. You need to understand that you don't want my job. You don't want my job. As a matter of fact, if the ministry of the gospel was not the deepest burden of my heart and a clear calling upon me, I would not want my job. I have to give an account, not only for my soul and the soul of my wife and the souls of my children, but I have to give an account for yours also. And that's a heavy burden to bear. That's a great responsibility and accountability, not just a great privilege. By that same token, by virtue of the fact that this body, though necessarily not you individuals, but this body, Legacy Baptist Church, ordained me, identified me as one who is called to ministry and sought to place themselves under my pastoral authority, 
by the fact that this church did that to me, you're accountable for me, just as I'm accountable for you. And just as I would be a partaker in your sin if I fail to watch for your soul, if I am living in open sin and you fail to, to rebuke me, you are accountable. You are a partaker in my sin. And that leads us to our final point, keep thyself pure. Notice that Paul speaks to Timothy here in the singular, keep thyself pure. Timothy need, needed to keep himself pure, and the church needs to keep itself pure. And that because only in purity can we be effective. Only in purity can God's people be effective one toward another. Only in purity can God's people be effective in reaching the lost with the gospel. Only in purity can the testimony of Jesus Christ be maximized among us. So how are we doing this morning? Now hopefully the natural application of this morning's message is not that I need to be confronted and rebuked for a bunch of open sin. But these concepts, spiritual accountability, not partaking in other men's sins, keeping ourselves pure, impartial, led of the Spirit, moment by moment, within the body, keeping our accounts clear, being honest, being open, no partiality. These things are essential. Is this us? in the body today? Is this you? Is this where we are? Is this where we're going? And if not, we need to get there. May God help us to orient our perspective as it relates to ministers, as it relates to elders, as it relates to my accountability to you, as it relates to your accountability unto me, so that we can all understand our accountability unto God. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.